0: Hello, and welcome to the 58th episode of the Machine Ethics Podcast. In this episode, we're talking with Lofred Mazu. This episode was recorded on the 7th of June 2021, and we chat about AI as a journey to understand ourselves through smart machines, scepticism about wholesale job loss, an excellent quote that you are not your data. We spend time dissecting the European proposal for AI regulation. We discuss the accountability of tech providers, examples of types of AI activities under regulation, the kinds of the spirit of the regulation, like human rights and risk-based approaches, and we also consider infringement exposure and compliance. If you'd like to listen to more episodes from the podcast, go to machine-ethics.net. You can contact us at hello at machine-ethics.net. You can follow us on Twitter, machine underscore ethics, or on Instagram, machineethicspodcast. If you can and would like to, you can support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash MachineEthics. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoy. Hi, Lofred. Thanks very much for coming on the show. If you could please introduce yourself, who you are and what you do.
1: Thank you for having me. So my name is Lofred Mazu. I'm a project lead for AI at the World Economic Forum Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution where I advise companies and governments on, mostly on AI governance. But I'm also a research associate at the Oxford Internet Institute and where my research focuses on, on two uh, main topics. The first one is the governance of AI through audit systems and the other one is the philosophy and ethics of AI.
0: Awesome. So you, you come to the right place. This is the Machine Ethics Podcast. We, we love all those topics and um, it's all kind of... It almost feels like it's um, kicked off uh, again recently because we've had um, this conversation in the EU around this new proposal for the AI regulation. And we'll briefly get onto that in a second. So I'm kind of sidestepping that. Um, and the first question we always ask on the podcast, which is, to you, what is AI?
1: That, uh, well, you can have like the, the textbook kind of definition, right? Because uh You know that AI is a moving target, right? So the textbook definition is the science of making machines doing things that would require intelligence done by done by men. And then you fall into the you know uh, defining what is intelligence, and you start you know uh, those perception, cognitive skills, and so forth. But it's really hard to come down to a very definitive decision, a definition. Sorry. So it means that intelligence is still really hard to. fully define, let's just say that it's a a beautiful journey to uh, understand ourselves through the development of uh, smart machines.
0: That's really nice. Um, I I always feel like, I mean, certainly with the ethics side of things, it is a a reflection of us and how we feel about it and and, um, part of the things that we make uh, reflecting back on us, especially when it comes down to bias and things like that, um, as we might talk about later why why did you get into this in the first place uh, what was kind of the, the thing that piqued your interest um coming from the background uh, you were interested in in law and and uh, philosophy yeah. and and then bridging into um, AI and and that topic
1: long story short is back in uh, 2012 you know 2013 I was uh, just graduating from my first uh, master's degree in international relations. And at that time, I was interested in the impact of technology on society and democratic processes. Uh, long story short, I started working in civic tech and joined the civic tech movement. A few months later, I realized that I need further training and applied for MSc in uh, data science and philosophy at the University of Oxford. And in applying, I was initially interested in improving my technical skills. You know, that was, you know, where the... the um read at the heights of the AI hype, and everyone wants to you know wants you just to join the movements. And um as I got accepted, uh one of the pre-reading books that we had, uh one of them was uh, called The Uh The Fourth Uh Revolution by Luciano uh, uh, Floridi. And that's a book that got me into the philosophy and ethics of, of AI. And that's when I realized that studying AI, working AI was a really interesting proxy to get better understanding uh, about us. What I mean here is, you know, what it means to be a human being um, and so forth. And that, que- that question really got my interests and kept growing and growing and until it became, you know, uh, frankly, an obsession. Um, <laughs> so after graduating, I started working on the AI governance space first for French governments. And now for World Economic Forum, but that philosophical question
0: has remained there and has been the biggest drive for me ever since. And and do you have a, a quick kind of uh, synopsis of the ideas that peaked you in the fourth industrial revolution?
1: Ultimately, like, uh, what got me in is, you know, that, that big claim that you can somehow reproduce human expertise and automate that expertise. And... Um, I think that claim is a very, very big claim. And but that, that it has been there for the last you know 70 years or so throughout like the different paradigm shifts in the in the AI field from you know symbolic AI all the way to machine learning. And even though I'm still a bit skeptical about that claim, I think it's a very, very powerful question to what extent you can capture human expertise into machines and what does it say about us? Um and that has been for me the most important question not only you know, uh, related to my work, mm. but I like even my personal and intellectual uh, journey And um
0: I, I feel like we could almost go down this this rabbit hole for the whole episode um, yeah let's go back <laughs> <laughs> um I, I just want it makes me want to ask what you think the answer is there that the you know to what extent we can automate, and and that's a question that we seem to be coming back to again and again, especially when we're talking about jobs and, and losing um, swathes of jobs to automation. And there's that Oxford paper from 2016, I think, which was a certain percentage of jobs would be lost in the next, you know, to automation in the next 10 years or so. And uh, seemingly no one would be untouched by this kind of... Yeah. yeah. Um, so is that something that, like rhymes true with how you think about this idea? And, and is that a, a big problem? No, actually,
1: like, uh, that's a strictly personal opinion. So that doesn't mm-hmm. engage in, you know, in your organization that I'm affiliated uh, with. It's really like a personal view on this. Um, I would say the more I know, the more I'm skeptical about that claim. And I think that, I think it is built on self uh, really misunderstanding about ourselves. And that's why it's really, really interesting, right? Just name a few. Um, one of them thinking that human intelligence is all about the brain, right? Somehow we moved from, you know, somebody that was really about logic and, and, you know, rational thinking to this machine learning loosely based uh, model of a brain. And we seem to forget, we seem to forget in that process that we're embodied beings. So that intelligence, that brain is not sitting there like at a computer on a table, but it is embodied in a, in a, in a, in a body and, for which we interact with the world. And that point is really, 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 is, is really key. Uh, so bottom line, human intelligence is not all about what's going on in the brain. So that's mm-hmm. one of the first, I would say, uh, misunderstanding. The second one is that, you know, somehow data about ourselves, if you have enough data about who we are, for instance, you know, all uh track record of your social media activity, uh you, you know, spending patterns, um, you know, even like monitoring you, you know, doing your groceries, any type of, you know, digital data somehow can capture a digital version of you. And uh, again, I don't think that's the case as well. Look, for for first point that you cannot capture all, you know, uh, information about us through, you know, digital uh, technologies, but also I think even more importantly, we're not just our data. Uh, We're not just our, uh, I would say, all the external interactions or manifestation of our behaviors don't tell the whole story about what we are. There's a lot of, like, you know, internal thinking, internal feelings, and so on, that are, you know, somehow not, uh, I would say, um, easily uh, trackable by external sensors. And I would say the third one is that we don't just like processing information. You know, in any any time when we perform various tasks. From like driving a car to um, teaching a class to taking care of an elderly in you know in a hospital, we're not just like processing information. We exercise judgment, and your ability to exercise judgment is not just like some logical assessment based on the fact that you have about a situation, but it requires you to take a stand. And taking a stand brings a very specific perspective on the situation. It's linked, you know based on your experience and also the social and cultural backgrounds within which you were you were uh, raised and all that word that word from you know your social background your expertise your experience the social settings within which you interact and the tasks you perform are intertwined deeply intertwined and linked so it's really hard to decouple them and reduce your expertise to again mm. your like soul like human body and mind
0: I feel like uh, we need on a, a billboard <laughs> where you said, um, you are not your data, <laughs> like a really big. like Exactly. You're not your data. Yeah, that's yeah. That would be a good motto. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, um, that, that's really great. Thank you for that. Um, I feel like it's something that chimes with me, right? Um, and you, I think you pulled out some of the points which, you know, people are frightened about. Being able to be reduced to to data uh, and 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 maybe feeling that uh, they are useless or less useful, but we are always exactly. human, and that's different. And we all have these different capabilities. Um, exactly. So let's let's bridge this void. Yeah, <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm really keen to kind of discuss why you think it is apt or at uh, the right time. To see some legislation, uh, and and then um, maybe have some ideas about um, the planned legislation of the EU um, on AI uh, that's coming into light.
1: That, that's a good question. I think, like for broader context, for uh, some of our listeners here, is that the European Commission has proposed a new regulation on AI in in, in April uh, that is going to be discussed at the Parliament and in all likelihood being adopted within the next two years. That's part of the broader uh, trends of AI regulation and policies uh, being put out there by various policymakers across uh, jurisdictions. So the first question is really, why now? And to to understand that, we need to understand, to look at what happened and what led to that. Long story short, I would say whether we, you know, AI has made, and here I'm talking about, the, again, the paradigm machine learning has made tremendous progress during the last decade or so. This has led, you know, AI from lab to the industry, and you have various, you know, applications building primarily on computer vision and natural language processing that have empowered business applications across industries. Bottom line, AI adoption has taken off. In uh, various uh, industries, and starting to have effects on People's lives, all the way from access to credit to healthcare to, uh, you know, a recruiting app and so forth, and social media, and so on, right? And these effects, effects have been, you know, uh, to a large extent beneficial uh, to the consumers and the various actors, you know, interacting with AI systems, but also creating various governance challenges, right, and, and issues from bias. To explainability, to privacy, because we know that these systems are really data angry. So, big progress, fast progress. You know, uh, greater adoption create benefits, but also some some downsides and policy issues that needs to be addressed. So, that's a very normal process. It's a bit um, for people who have been paying attention. Actually, some people have been calling for regulation for quite a long time, and it's coming now. But again, it's a very it's a very uh, a classic process. Mm-hmm. so that's the first part the second part is what I think about that regulation uh, I think it's a it's a very sensible regulation I think again the timing is is, is good and sensible in two key aspects the first one is the risk based approach and we were getting into like you know the technical details but one thing you need to understand when we are discussing uh, learning systems is that these systems are evolving with data and use so it creates a whole you know set of issues Um, that, again, briefly uh, um, touched upon that are really context-dependent. giving you a concrete example. If you use facial recognition technology uh, to board a plane as a a means to, to access a plane or use it for law enforcement investigation, actually, I have a project on facial recognition, that's why I'm using that example, it brings very different set of benefits and risks. So if you want to govern... Or address some of the challenges or good changes risks in you know any of these two use cases. You have to have a very contextual approach and the risk-based approach, looking at how risk manifests in specific applications and addressing this risk in a very contextual manner. So that's that's uh, the, the the good one. That's a, that's a very important point. The second point I want to to stress about uh, that uh, that regulation is the. Key role that it places on technology providers. So, in terms of liability, there are primary liable actors concerned by the regulation. Even though there are instances and in, again use cases in which uh, tech uh, users will have some 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 uh, you know liabilities and requirements uh, to fulfill, but it really uh, insists on the. Accountability of tech providers, which I think is critical considering the the the, the rich, uh, in our uh, in our economy now.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, definitely, I think it's it seems illogical that there maybe wasn't this strong focus on the responsibility or or the accountability of actors in producing things. And it's been kind of a, a kind of strange kind of deference to, you know, the system has done this thing or the system says no. or um, And I always thought that there was a, a bizarre case <laughs> um, that that had come uh, about, um, which was probably the result of like bad, de- bad design or bad practices within mm. industry rather than something that we actually ever anything which was ever sensible in that in that frame. Um, so I'm really um pleased that there was a, there is a focus on, you know, we are producing this service and product and we are accountable for the delivery of this product. Makes sense. That's how the world works generally. Um but there's also this risk-based approach. I feel like is it not like a context specific approach? Because
1: risk based because you have like four levels of risk. The first one is what what they call uh an acceptable risk and that's mm you know, these applications are probably going to be banned. And here I'm thinking about the example that they're giving in the legislation on the proposal is uh, social uh, credit scoring, which is, uh, you know, legal in other part of the world, but the EU wants to make it clear that this won't be uh, possible within the EU and in relation to uh, EU uh, citizens. The second thing you have, like... Um, I think, which is called like I uh, level I uh, risk applications. I'm trying to rethink because i mm-hmm. yeah,
0: yeah,
1: I risk applications and I risk applications. There you have like various additional requirements. Bottom line, you can classify the I risk applications into set of uh, applications. Anything that may affect citizens or consumers' rights, you know, access the right to access various uh, you know benefits or services. Think about recruiting access to employment, but also access to healthcare, access to education, and so on. So all these applications that have fundamental effects on people's life's chances, their ability to move across society and their fundamental rights are subject to these additional requirements. And then on the other side, you have um, what we call uh critical infrastructures, right? So in these critical infrastructures, think about like nuclear plants, think about AI systems for hospitals, anything that may have a critical importance for society of our various sectors, are going to fall under uh, uh, this classification. And then you have limited risk, so they will be subject to minimal transparency obligations. And here, uh, take the example of chatbots. And finally, you have minimal risk applications; they won't face any additional provision. Uh, here, you know, a good example is spam filters. So you have that's why you have, that's why I was you know using the term categories of risk because that's how it was designed. And depending on the level of risk of your application, you're going to face increased uh, requirements until the highest level where it will be simply banned because deemed as unacceptable risk. And and do you
0: think there's going to be um some sort of guidance uh, supplementary guidance because i can imagine if you're thinking about this something as your uh, own company or your own products and you're kind of trying to work out whether i fit into a band category here um there's obviously that like kind of two ways of thinking about it one is you probably should be doing some of the stuff they recommend anyway uh, yeah <laughs> right um and then there's also like, you know, making sure that you understand where your product lives in that categorization. So do you think there would be a, a larger portion of examples um, of kind of types of activity almost?
1: Definitely. So um, one thing I think is really, really to have in mind is that that's the first draft. So it's likely to evolve across time and as it's going through the parliament. So that list of what are the, of you know defining the applications that are deemed high risk, minimal risk, Unacceptable risk is likely to evolve, mm-hmm. you know, through the democratic process. So that's really uh, something to 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 have in mind. Uh, the second thing is, as we gain more information about the AI systems that have been deployed, it's likely as well, based on feedback and insight we gather across industries, to have again an evolution on that list. Um, and also, and you know, because as we gain more insight into, so, I don't know, like you know, AI systems being used in healthcare or over industries again that that list is likely uh, is likely to evolve what i would always advise to companies uh, the temptation is to try to have like a really you no know, arithmetic assessment of your regulatory exposure looking at what your system does what is the industry and, you know, vertical within which operates, what is the likelihood to be somehow cut by the regulation. That's a sensible approach and, and you know, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't oppose that, but I think it's also really important to understand the spirit of the regulation. Trying to grasp what the regulators are trying to achieve here and mm-hmm. take appropriate steps, you know, to uh, build a system that are, you know, uh, similar or in accordance with that spirit, which is really this human rights centric approach. Again, I can further uh, elabor- elaborate on this, but that's that's also key advice. Don't just cut on the lists because that's going to evolve. And don't try to have just like a simple arithmetic assessment of, you know, regulatory obligations because that's going to evolve as well, uh, especially if you if, you know, through like jurisprudence, but also as I said, as we gain more information about the impact of AI systems across various industries.
0: Yeah, that's a really good idea because obviously there, you can do that today. You can assess kind of how you affect uh, norms and rights as opposed to, you know, falling into this categorization, which may change. Um, and, you know, there might be new categories applied. It's it's all kind of in flux, I guess. There's There's a really interesting part of the proposal, which is a kind of a devil's advocate question here. They've left out a provision for governmental arms and things like that so is there is there kind of a worry that um you know it's almost like we are subjected to this overarching policy which maybe the government isn't subjected to um or is that kind of much a pessimistic view of no, uh, <laughs> no,
1: no, no, no! A very important thing to say is like this: this uh, provisions will equally apply to AI systems being deployed for public uh, operations mm. and governments. So that's that's something really, really important to stress out. It's not just for the private sector; it's going to apply equally for for government bodies.
0: Okay, cool. Uh, maybe I misinterpreted. Um, I, I think um, I think it was maybe warfare was exempt, but again, yeah, that, that's
1: some like minor like in mm-hmm. can look at the details of it. But, you know, mostly that risk based approach, that's my that's what I want to stress out, there may be specific, you know, uh, governments, uh, I would say, um, um, not operations, but yeah, there might be like some, yeah, areas where uh, we have a difference, you know, or distinctive regulatory approach, but overall, you know, the risk based approach, equally applies in the public and private sector.
0: Yeah, okay, cool. Um, so, We've kind of talked about the kinds of um, types of activity that fall into different bands. And I think it has a similar sanction or it proposes a similar sanction to GDPR. So you can get this huge fine if if you fall into one of these categories and and don't uphold this.
1: Yeah. So basically you have, uh, you know, again, that's a proposal likely Mm. to evolve, but that's a very important point to stress. Uh, you expose yourself to various you know, penalties for infringements, but keep in mind that these penalties apply—you uh, know—again, they vary depending on, on the type of infringement. I'm going to give you a concrete example. You expose yourself up to 30 million or 6% of a total worldwide annual turnover of a preceding financial year for infringements on prohibited practices or non-compliance related to requirements on data. So. You know, order requirements, you know, related to data, I expose you to that, you know, 40 million or 6%, mm-hmm. up to 20 million or 4%, the Aureus key, of a total worldwide, again, annual turnover of a preceding financial year for non-compliance with any of the requirements, obligations for regulation,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and specifically these requirements for high uh, uh, risk applications. Yeah. So. My point here is just I give you two examples, but you have different levels of you know penalties depending on the type of infringements and depending on you know the I would say the categories of risk with which your application fall fall into. So that's why that regulation is quite lengthy. Uh you know, uh mm-hmm. and you need to, you know, uh, as a company, as a business leader, at least I would say if you don't have time, make sure that you know uh, the head of risk and compliance has been through that uh, proposal in detail because even though it's a proposal, the spirit of that regulation is very much likely to be uh, uh
0: intact uh you know throughout the um, legislative process and discussion at the parliament. And and do you see this sort of EU proposal being duplicated across other geographies in the, in a similar way?
1: That's a good question. Uh it's you know the future is always more imaginative, so you know it's hard to have a definitive answer. Mm. So, I guess like the, the very like you know uh, a safe answer would be to say it is going to have a global impact similar to the GDPR. To what extent it's going to be copied exactly as it is, I doubt so. Mm. For for various reasons, the first one is GDPR is as big as the GDPR is only about data protection, so that regulation is much more comprehensive, and uh, the breath regulation is much bigger. And also, it falls into a global uh, geopolitical competition, you know, to establish a dominant AI ecosystem. And we know that now the two AI superpowers, China and the US, are you know uh, have intensified their competition.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think, at least in the foreseeable future, it's quite unlikely to see the US or China taking an aggressive Regulatory approach on AI again doesn't mean that some of the provisions or you know sections of a regulation won't be similarly adopted in other jurisdictions, but at that that will see a comprehensive regulatory proposal as we see in the EU. It will be much more sectoral, mm-hmm. much more uh, I would say targeted uh, at least in the foreseeable future. One thing I would like to stress, you know, going back on that, okay what it mean like you know uh, align with the spirit of a of, of regulation and and uh, um, for me it comes down to good business practices uh because the goal here is to scale responsible AI meaning or scale AI responsibly sorry mm. and that's what the regulation is trying to 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 force you to do and if you step away from the exact requirements because I said they're still being debated we're going to they may evolve and blah blah mm. but you know, you go at the you know uh, underlying, I would say, uh, um, uh, trends and and, and the really foundation of that of that regulation. It comes from a place where, and there's a growing ado- acknowledgement of this in the EU, but also across various jurisdictions, that AI systems have been deployed across industries were being properly vetted. Mm. Very simply, is that in some instances, you know. We observed some, you know, bad outcomes because of some reckless deployments, or like uh, at least not thoughtful enough. I wouldn't say you know reckless to 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 you know um, not thoughtful enough, and it means that you need to build the appropriate governance processes to make sure that your system, before going live, is appropriately vetted. So, again, what does it imply? It implies three core things. The first one is you need to document the lineage of your model and your system. Sorry, more broadly, you need to know what training data you know went into uh, came into into its design. What did, what was the definition of, of success? What were the stakeholders involved in that uh, design process? And you need to document all the stages of that design process. So that's really really important to keep track of this and at, at, at every level in a very granular, uh, I would say, uh, uh, fashion. The second one is you need to really think carefully about your performance metric. Now, in the industry, we tend to assess the performance of models based on benchmark data sets. So put very simply, you have any task in computer vision or NLP, you, you find the benchmark data sets uh, that fits your task, and you, you know, train your model on this. Once you pass a certain threshold, you kind of go live. The world being always more messy and complicated than you know the laboratory conditions, your model starts to mess up and some are like you know adverse effects. So even if it's really well trained, as I mm-hmm. said, it evolves data and use, so you're likely to face things like data drifts, uh, increased biases, and so on. Right. So from the very beginning, you need to anticipate whatever risks that you make. You know, uh, your, your model may face as it's being deployed on the ground, and this often requires a broader definition of performance, which enables you to include over-stakeholder's perspectives, consumer, vulnerable communities, civil society, and so on. And as you do this you know risk mapping comprehensively and can be done effectively, comprehensively doesn't mean slow, mm-hmm. really, really important. Uh, you get a better sense of what your model can and cannot do and what can you expect in terms of risk mitigation and build the right mitigation processes. The last piece is Monitoring the behavior of your model while in operation. As I said, learning systems are dynamic systems and they evolve both data and use. So even if you well-intentioned the well, you know, a better foot through uh, model is likely to come short in many instances. So you need to monitor its behavior so as be able so as to be able to reestablish establish consistency with the intelligence use and requirements that you, you know you introduced in the first place mm-hmm. as the system. Is being rolled out and used in the market. So again, you know, document the lineage, thoughtful and comprehensive risk mitigation uh, uh strategies in place through mixed process to map out what are these risks in the first place and finally monitoring the of your model. Whatever will be the final regulation, whatever will be the final mm-hmm. requirements, if you do these three things, likelihood is you will be much closer to regulate to uh to compliance. But more broadly, you would build trust with our stakeholders, consumer, citizens, and regulators.
0: Yeah, definitely, and I, I, uh, I think those three things kind of really maximise kind of what you can achieve in a normal data science process. You know, if you're already doing a certain amount of documentation, you can increase that, and you can put in the right things. If you're already um, doing risk management, then you can. Work this, you know. I mean, it's not exactly, It's not loads of stuff which is kind of too alien. In exactly, yeah. Um, is do you think there's? I mean, it, I'm gonna ask this question again because I've, I've I was gonna ask two questions <laughs> kind of fighting in my brain. If you were a small company, it, it sounds almost like a monolithic task. Obviously, you can hire people like myself, um, to. Uh, come and help you with this process it's um, so a bit of a naughty plug there um, but and there's other people like myself and companies that can help you out but if you wanted to go through this process is there does it seem like it is sort of um, impossible for those small companies or is you have to be a company of a certain size or you have to be um, that's you know, a good X y and Z you know to yeah. to comply what a,
1: that's a good question so what a, what is the costs? Uh, you know, of implementing these processes. Um, two things. Uh, the first one is, uh, before getting into like, you know, the cost themselves, the costs are going to go down as practices are being more adop- broadly adopted in the industry again. Mm-hmm. Trivial point, not that trivial. My point here is, is really important that we're going through a correction process. Again, systems were like, you know, um, put into uh, into the market of production without being properly vetted as, mm-hmm. you know, we come to terms with some of these reckless behaviors. You have system properly being vetted, and the cost of implementing this process go down, right? Because it becomes like industry standards, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, so you can account for inv- you know you have like it basically it fits within your financial sheets, and as you, you, you gain investment and so on, you know it comes it comes together. The second thing is in relation to regulation itself, it's likely to have some threshold under which you're not subject to regulation, similar to the GDPR. So again, I don't know what that what this threshold will be, but uh they want to make sure that they're not creating like you know markets barriers for smaller actors. So again, that risk has been uh taken into consideration and likely to be reflected in the final adopted proposal. If I may ask, uh, at the third thing, going back to your point, people like you and other people, you know, at the forum as well, because of we many governance processes. Um the responsible AI startup ecosystem is blooming. It's blooming because, as I said, these needs are, are going to be there for, you know, most companies doing AI and some people will claim that because all companies are going to do AI. You multiply that and you have a sizable market. But you can get support and expertise on every element I've mentioned, risk mitigation, you know, uh, uh, risk mitigation, risk management uh, processes. You can get, you know, help on um, privacy enhancing technologies. You can get help on um, model um, model monitoring. You can get help on, uh, and which includes also explainability, uh, and so on and so on and so on. Right. So I, I won't name, all of them, but the point is, you can get that external support if you don't have the resources to do it internally and uh, more and more actors out there to help you. Um, I do think, and if you're looking at the big actors, especially big tech, they are building this this expertise internally. So I think for the next, in that second phase of correction, you're going to have uh, professional services and startups providing services to companies to build these governance processes. But as the industry mature, these processes will be internally managed and part of the day-to-day business operation of these companies. I hope it makes sense. Mm -hmm. So the cost wouldn't be that big if you're a small company. If you pass, if you establish enough, you're still very much puzzled by the regulation, you can find expertise and help out there at the form of uh, a dozen of frameworks across uh, use cases, all the way to chatbot, to facial recognition, to HR, to... um, um which one like agriculture and, and and so on and so on. So places like us, but also you and other actors, you can find that expertise, so shouldn't be really worried. Feel free to reach out if you
0: if you're really you know struggling with this. Um awesome. So uh we're getting towards the end now. Is there um I would I would like to to keep talking to you about um the philosophy side. So it might be we can get you on another time again um in the future. Um But just to tide us off now, um, that has all been really uh, extremely useful. So thank you very much. Um, The last question we always ask on the podcast is, what scares you and what excites you about the future with AI and AI-mediated world?
1: I like to say, uh, as really my mentor, because here I'm... uh, um, One thing I didn't mention is I'm really into... um, phenomenology, a school of philosophy called phenomenology, and really into, uh, I would say, three main figures, uh, Heidegger, uh, Mer- Maurice Merleau-Ponty, and, and, and uh, Hubert Dreyfus, the American uh, philosopher. Um, one of the key insights of Dreyfus' work that spans across 50 years is that the biggest risk of AI is not the advent of superintelligent computers uh, taking over and, you know, these people concerned about this? Well, my point is, at the very least, it's a very like sensible point to say that there is no thing in the current paradigm, instead of the art in AI, that make that can make you believe that somehow we're going to have like a you know, uh, supercomputers coming around anytime soon. That's a that's a very fair first statement, yeah, you know, uh, and safe statement. No, the biggest risk is the advent of sub-intelligence human beings. So, what is sub-intelligence? Well, it's human beings so deeply confused but what AI can do, capabilities and limitations, that they fail to appreciate what AI should do, what are the socially beneficial applications. And that's, that very point ties back to our understanding of human expertise. Right, It's really important. If you fail to understand what makes human beings so unique and try to attribute human expertise and skills to machines and delegate more and more importance, uh, Decision making power, you set yourself a failure. And that failure is caused by your very confusion about variabilities, the capabilities and limitations. And uh, in, in relation, you poor understanding of human beings. So that's for me the biggest and macro risk. And again, it seems like really like you no know, philosophical, but again, it manifests mm-hmm. on, on, on on very concrete use cases. And as I always say, many of the governance challenges that we face are not just related to. Um, I would say failure system, but also misguided deployments. Which, you know, uh, um, you know it's, it's like you know, machine learning is really powerful, and you start to think that all human problems comes to machine comes down to machine learning. The truth mm-hmm. is that many valuable social and business problems that go way beyond like pattern recognition, because you know, deep learning comes down to pattern recognition. There's more to intelligence than pattern recognition. It's a really really important to thing to understand. What I'm more ex- most excited about um, we're going to to know more about ourselves. Again, I think like, you know, if I really, again, I'm simplifying here, but I've come to realize that there are really two types of people obsessed with AI. On the one hand, people are really convinced that, you know, somehow AI can get close to us and displace us and, you know, really, they may not be worried about it, they may be really excited about that, that, that prospect, but very interesting in the engineering process, interesting in you know what the machine you know uh not only can do but ultimately creating a machine that can somehow perform us or or mimic us right to some mm-hmm. extent right and now other people are like just using machines as a proxy to know themselves and know, know us as human beings i'm more in the second category again it's it's an oversimplification you love you know over people mm-hmm. uh, they fall in neither of categories but i'm really more in the second one um and again uh I'm going to give you a really concrete example uh, as we get into uh, more uh, predictive learnings or personalized learnings that's that's going to bring a set of questions interesting questions but what it means to be a teacher what is teaching video about to what extent can you really personalize learning as you go online and you've seen through that pandemic and you don't have like the kind of collegiate experience and you know experience of sharing a class what are you really losing out, what it means to learn online, Um, and so on and so on, and that's extremely, extremely, you know, uh, interesting, and and another one is, and I think for me, the core, core, core question is this question of, you know, uh, expertise and judgment. The real deal for me is not so much about you know the doom prospect of either you build machines or you you condemn, you know you're going to be replaced by machine. I think it's a very mm. uh, it's a very misguided uh, assessment of the situation. But what is a what is a meaningful collaboration? I think the meaningful collaboration is when you're able to understand what AI can do, how far it can go, and when you know what should be remains within the realm mm. of man and and in human beings more broadly. And often it comes down to ability to exercise judgments, uh, creativity, uh, you know, uh, I would say social interactions, Um, yeah, Mm. what needs to be preserved. And I think as we're going to see more and more AI failures, we're going to get a better appreciation of what makes us unique. And that's what I'm excited about.
0: Awesome. Thank you very much. You are a unique person. Um, thank you so much for spending this time with me and um, the listeners. So uh, thanks again. How can people follow you, find out about you, contact you?
1: I have a personal website. So we just type like uh, my first name, last like, so lofredmazu.com and they will find me easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, also find me on my social media, on LinkedIn and, and, and Twitter. But again, my website is you know, the main place to see all my work. Academic and uh, policy work, and see the connections between these two. Because something I really want to stress, even though philosophy is not an applied, you know, uh, discipline, it has some very, very deep and concrete implications. Especially when you think about governance, because governance is really about the rules of the game and how you shape, you know, humans' behaviors to, you know, in relation to some uh, social objectives. Philosophy is really, really a powerful method. To do that work, and I'm trying to make that connection of these links more obvious for people. Mm-hmm. And besides, uh, it shouldn't—you know—I hope that most of the points we, we discussed here are really were accessible and easy to understand, even to non-trained philosophers. Because I do think that behind the jargon, there's a way to uh, unlock these insights to the benefits of everyone, and it doesn't need to be highly technical or really complex.
0: I think we should come back and revisit and, and kind of investigate further uh, on this subject as well. That'd be awesome. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, I will speak to you soon. Thank you. Hi, and welcome to the end of the podcast. It was a pleasure to have Lofrid on the episode. I particularly enjoy the fact that he has this real passion for philosophy as well as this work that he's doing in regulation and advising uh, companies and institutions of what to do about AI and the ethical side and the governance of AI. I think he's one of those people that you know, we could get on again and, and talk about uh, more philosophy specifically it was really great to have someone who was really knowledgeable about this new EU legislation coming through and how it might impact us all uh, working with different organisations. So thanks again to him. If you'd like to follow us um, message us if you could go to patreon.com forward slash machine ethics to get in contact and support the podcast thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time.